Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Frantz Tapon. In this episode, I talk with Boy Vardati, who gave a TED Talk, 2 million vu- views almost, what I learned from Nelson Mandela. He also wrote a book that just came out this week. It's called The Lion's Tracker's Guide to Life. His family looks over the Londolozi Game Reserve in South Africa, and we talk about that. We talk about what does it mean to have a sit spot? How does a lion's mane actually protect the lion? What's the first story that we tell ourselves? And what can we learn from tracking a lion? Does hunting help or hurt animal conservation? This episode is sponsored by Tour Radar, which is running a special promotion for WanderLearn listeners. Go to tourradar.com slash WanderLearn. Each month, listeners can sign up for a chance to win amazing travel prizes. They include everything from a $1,000 travel credit or a trip for two to Europe or a free river cruise in Asia. Visit tourradar.com slash WanderLearn to sign up for your chance to win today. And now, enjoy the podcast. The first book I wrote was called Cathedral of the Wild. And it's the story of the, this beautiful wild piece of land that I grew up on in South Africa. My, my family story begins in 1926 when my great-grandfather bought a bankrupt cattle farm in the wild eastern part of South Africa. Um, and he bought it at that time because the land was very run down, the cattle farming was failing, and it was failing for two reasons. One, it's quite a low rainfall area. It's a very harsh environment. Um, and two, lions were eating a lot of the cattle. And so the, the first reason that my family went to that land was actually as hunters, to go and hunt lions. And that's what they did for three generations until my grandfather died, and my father and my uncle, and then very soon after that, my mother um, shifted what happened on that piece of land away from hunting and started to develop a relationship with the piece of land, started to protect the animals and actually started to work on bringing the land uh, back to life. So after the cattle had grazed it, it had been overgrazed, they actually started the process of restoring the land to its original state. And there's this beautiful, uh, you know, where I grew up, I grew up in a piece of land that had been restored. I grew up on a piece of land where the animals had come back where wild animals had come back and we were able to see them and have a relationship with them where we had shifted from hunting to protecting. And so the first book, Cathedral of the Wild, is about growing up inside of that wild, beautiful uh, connection with nature. And the piece of land is right next to the famous Kruger National Park. And on the Lozi Game Reserve is a very well-known and, by the way, expensive game reserve, I, I believe, to, to actually hang out in. But it is because it's right next to the park, you get an abundance of animals there. Yeah, that's right. It's about, um, about 30,000 acres inside, with no fences, inside of a larger about 10 million acres, which is what they call the, the Greater Kruger Transfrontier uh, National Park. Which is adjacent to Mozambique. It's a national park that connects Mozambique and Zimbabwe. It's one of the largest wild areas in the world, just a tremendous wilderness. Um, and we're, we're connected to that wilderness. And the latest book is called The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. And this is a relatively sh- a short book, but it's a, it's a very intriguing and pulls you in because it has this story of you going and tracking these lions. So your ancestors tracked lions as well, but in an effort to kill them 
And meanwhile, here you are. What would your ancestors say to you if they, I mean, if your great, great, great grandfather talked to you, would he say, boy, you got to like kill that thing. (laughs) Why are you protecting it? (laughs) You know, I think that, um, I think that if my ancestors were around now, they would be very proud of what had happened on that piece of land. They would be, if, if we drove them around or we walked them around now, they would see dramatically more animals than they saw when they were there. They would have encounters with animals that weren't running away from them because they were afraid they were going to get hunted. And I think that that would move them very deeply. And I also think that they would be impressed at how we have, um, how we've protected and learned from the Shangan people, the ancient art form of tracking and how we have uh, honored it and, and made it a part of who we are to, to sort of as an operation every day we have tracking teams. We go out, we follow, we find animals so that people from all over the world can see them, have an encounter with them. And, you know, something, you know, this from all of your time in Africa, something phenomenal happens when you get into the presence of a wild animal and it changes something deep inside of you. So whenever I'm out there tracking an animal, um, in the hopes of finding it and being able to use my my radio or my walkie-talkie to call in the safari trucks, I know that people on those vehicles will have a chance to see something that can fundamentally change their relationship with nature. And so I think our ancestors would be very, very proud of how far we've come. And I'm extremely happy to be a fourth-generation custodian who has never hunted um, a lion or a leopard on that property. My great-grandfather did, my, my grandfather did, my father and uncle did, and, and I haven't. And yet I'm very connected via the art form of tracking. And I feel just a tremendous sense of um, responsibility and love and connection to those animals. Is your father still with us? Yes, yes. And what does he say now? Since he, in fact, hunted lions. Now, I imagine he was helpful at at, at pushing the conservation aspect and and saying, okay, we're going to stop hunting. Yeah, well, it was really him and my uncle and my mother who who pioneered that transition. And one of the things that happened is they, they met a man who became kind of a ecological guru to them. And this man was a man called Ken Tinley. And he said, if you want this place to sustain itself, if you want it to survive, um, you need to partner with the land and you need to think of the animals as your kin. And so he, in, Ken introduced this philosophy of being, rather than being in opposition with the land, being in partnership with it. And he inspired inspired them to start restoring where the cattle had grazed the the land bare. He inspired them to start to feel connected to the land in a different way. And now when I see my father and my uncle and and in, in fact my entire family, when I see them moving on that landscape, I can feel the landscape has healed and it gives us energy and we feel connected to it. And we, we feel a deep sense of belonging there. And we feel like we're in harmony and, and working with the landscape and creating with that while creating with nature. And that's a very deep and beautiful. And, you know, one of the things that I'm saying to people is that I believe that some of the undiagnosed homesickness uh, or some of the, some of the anxiety and depression that we feel, is a kind of homesickness for a sense of belonging, for a sense of being a part of the natural world. Um, and so, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think that my ancestors would be very, very proud of, of what has happened there now. 
Very good. Now, one of the things I learned right from the get-go in your book, you you mentioned, and I, I know it's a pre-release copy, so I'm probably not supposed to quote it, but I'll quote it anyway. A large male lion can tip the scale at 400 pounds. It can cover a 100-meter dash in four seconds, and it regularly takes on prey, such as buffalo, that is double their size. And then at one point you say that lions are different than other animals, than, than other cats, the, the tigers, leopards, and jaguars, with their mane to defend their head and neck. Now, this is something I've always heard, but I just never understood. So can you explain how a mane, which I imagine is just hair, maybe it's not, <laughs> that how does hair defend you from a, a vicious bite from, or, 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 or trying to get gored by a buffalo? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the first thing is that you're just dealing with a tremendous athlete, you know, when you when you think about a lion. And if you take away, if you just take away the claws and the teeth, and if you were to imagine a 400 pound um, animal that can do the four se- uh, that can do the hundred meters in four seconds, slamming into you, you start to get a sense of the power and the the speed and just what you're dealing with. And everything is scaled. The strength is scaled. The intensity is scaled. A lion is just a formidable animal. And if you get close to them, which are in, in, in other settings, I've actually had close contact with lions before, but that mane, it's, it's not sort of like the soft, gentle hair on the top of your head. You have to think of it as a thick, almost wiry mat, and it's dense. And as I say in the book, male lions are, are the, one of the few cats they, they like to fight. Most of the solitary cats, because they're solitary, they can't afford to get an injury. So if rather than get into conflict, they'll try and get away. But a lion has evolved to fight, and that's why he's got that big mane. And it's um, when they fight, they often will bite for the back of the neck. They'll bite for underneath the neck. Occasionally, they'll bite into the spine. But in close contact, that, neck, that mane acts as a kind of a giant, wiry shock absorber, and it makes his it makes his, the actual um, esophagus and the jugular vein very difficult to get to. So if another lion tries to bite him, he can move and he can get these vast quantities of hair in the way of the bite. If he gets slapped by a very powerful clawed paw, that mane will actually absorb a lot of it. So think of it as like a thick, wiry shock absorber around their, around their head. I'm, when I was reading your book for some odd reason and i i really don't know why but i kept thinking about dinosaurs <laughs> because i was just imagining like these creatures that would just do make a line the line would be a snack to some of the dinosaurs <laughs> and so i just imagine you tracking these dinosaurs and just like being in awe of their power and just like ignoring the line because it's like nothing compared to these dinosaurs <laughs> But it's just, it, it, talk about a, these formidable animals. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange feeling when, I mean, the, the, the book is, you know, it's, it's a single day on what happens for a tracker on a single day following the tracks of a lion. Right. And so it's morning till evening following. But it is this amazing feeling. You wake up and as you venture out into that vast wilderness, and this is an experience that a lot of people won't have in, in modern life, you know, there is something out there that is completely unpredictable. You don't know where it's gone. You don't know what happened to it during the night. Maybe it, maybe it's hungry. Maybe it got into a, um, maybe it made a kill. Maybe they spent the night trying to 
uh, catch buffalo and the buffalo were chasing them and stampeding. So you don't know what type of a mood you're going to run into. Maybe when you head out there to start tracking, a lion that you've never come across before um, has come in from the Kruger National Park. So, I mean, it is this strange feeling of being out there amongst these unknown beasts and being out there in a wilderness where you don't know what could happen. So you have to be incredibly present. And one of the things about the track is you have to be present and there's a language to the natural world. And that's how you make it safe out there. So a lot of people have this idea that, you know, it's just like you walk out there and the animals are just going to eat you. It's, it's dangerous. It's terrifying. But if you behave accordingly and if you pay attention and if you know the language of the natural world, it's, it's actually safe, but you have to be present. And that's sort of the foundation of the tracker is to be tuned in, to be listening, to be reading the tracks on the ground, because the tracks will tell you more than just a lion walked here. It will tell you the speed at which the lion was moving. It would tell you, uh, give you a sense of the pattern with which he's moving, which could mean he's moving fast to get to a kill. He heard another lion roar. He's going to go and fight. He's, he's marking his territory. So he's moving in a meandering way. It's all, there's a lot of information there. Yeah. There's one point in the book where you actually, uh, you and your tracker are walking and you say, ha ha, they've met the rest of the pride and they're kind of like bumping into each other. They're kind of snuggling up next to each other. The ma- the male and the female lion are kind of intertwined and kind of greeting each other. And then eventually later they kind of separate. Yeah. I mean, it's tracking is storytelling, you know, right. so you called it, I think in your book, you called it the, 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 the first story that we told ourselves. Yeah, it's the first story that humanity ever told when we were out there on the plains um, in the deserts of sub-Saharan Africa where we came from. You know, we started this process. We started to realize that this abstract imprint on the ground was associated with something. And then we started to follow the trails of these animals and we started to understand how they moved. We started to understand their thought patterns. We started to understand what drove them. And so, it's, and, and when you track an animal now, it's very much storytelling. And that's why I think that the Shangan people who are the native people uh, in the area where I grew up are some of the best trackers in the world because they're some of the best storytellers. They know how to drop into the story. They'll tell you, okay, this lion is moving fast. He's alone. Ah, now he's joined up with um, his pride. Now the pride is hunting. You see the, the pattern changed from where they've all been walking together. Suddenly, the, it becomes erratic. Oh, they killed something small. Um, here into the side come a huge group of hyenas. The hyenas chase the lions off. You know, the whole, the whole story starts to unfold for you. Mm. And when you spend a day tracking animals, whether you find the animal or not, you are deeply connected with that animal. It's a very intimate process. You've been a part of its story as you've been following it. Right. And, and for some people they actually take it to the next level for them is the whole idea of hunting and so there for them that they have this passion of getting involved in the story tracking 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 but then they want to kind of like end the story and like the conclusion is i shot him or i killed him and stuff like that um and many hunters argue that hunting is a way of conserving the land. And as a South African, you know that there are plenty of game reserves in South Africa, and they argue just that. 
What do what is your take? Do you think that hunting is a integral part of conserving the land or is it diametrically opposed to it? Um, you know, Francis, it the the hunting versus versus sort of photographic tourism debate is a debate that is as old as time. You know, it's an and and it it has um, people have strong feelings on either side. Um, I think that it has a lot to do with the nature of the hunting. There is certain types of hunting that are done very respectfully, very responsibly, um, and in a, in a manner that, is, that has a certain set of values to it. And those, it, is, it is true that those operations do mean that huge areas of wildland are protected. Um, ha- having said that, though, there are, there are also examples where it's being done in the most terrible way. Um, so I think it's, it's more of a question of the ethics around who's doing it and how it's being done. And I think one needs to be extremely mindful of that. One of the big problems at the moment in, in Africa is that it used to be that there was a, a well-governed permit system. And fortunately now there's a lot of corruption in a lot of places. And so that system, you know, more and more permits mysteriously are getting issued. And I think that when the process starts to get mired in, in corruption, it becomes very, very difficult to know what, what is being done in a, in, a, in a way that is respectable and safe um, and sustainable. Personally, I think that more and more we are entering into a time where we need to be exposing people. And one of the things that I love about tracking is you can expose someone, just the art form itself, you can expose them to an incredible experience in nature. You can put them into a deep connection with the natural world. And a lot of hunters find it to be a, they find hunting to be a primal type of experience. Um, tracking is equally primal. You are doing something that is ancient. You are doing something that very few people know how to do, and you are deeply connected with nature. But at the end of it, uh, after a day tracking as just a tracker, not as a hunter, you don't need to kill the animal, and yet you have been in that deep connection and union. Um, yeah. yeah no. so, and I know that a lot of people now are, are hunting, will go and hunt a single animal and then uh, feed their family for months on that single hunt. And I think there's, I'm, not everyone can do it, but I mean, to me, to go out and hunt a single wild animal in a sustainable area where the population is strong and then to eat that for a number of months rather than being involved in some of the factory farming that's going on at the moment is a, is a positive thing. Very well said. And you kind of are changing your direction. After you had a, your TED Talk, which was widely viewed, millions of views, and I invite people to check it out and listen to it uh, about what you learned from Nelson Mandela is the title of your talk, of your TED talk. Now you've kind of decided to create these retreats to take people into the Bushveld and, and learn about adventures and learn about tracking. Can you talk a little bit about this kind of pivot that you've kind of combined some of the, your two main passions in your life, the uh, Londozi 
I always have trouble with the name. <laughs> Londolozy. <laughs> Londolozy, thank you. Um, it's one of these things, Londolozy, I always see it written, but I never actually hear anybody say it. So. <laughs> yeah, well, it's quite a challenge to say, you know. <laughs> it's a Zulu word. Right. Oh, and speaking of Zulu, sorry. I, 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 okay, well, I guess I don't know which topic to talk, talk about first, but we'll get, to, we'll get to where I was going to next. But the, the, the Zulu thing reminded me that the Zulus might have learned one of their attack techniques from the lions describe that because you talk about that a little bit in your book yeah it's just something that i wonder about the zulu army were a famous army a formidable army um under the great military general shaka zulu and one of the techniques that shaka zulu developed was a technique known as the horns of the buffalo and what he would do on large scales is a, a central column would approach the enemy and they were you have to remember they're armed with large shields and, and uh, assegais, sort of spears, a central column would approach, approach the enemy and the enemy would engage the central column. And that's what they call the boss, the, the sort of central part of the horns of the buffalo. At the same time, two um, horns, unseen, sometimes miles away, would throw left around the enemy and right around the enemy, but unbeknownst to the enemy. And then suddenly, at a certain point, these, these circular flanking arms would appear and and the enemy would know that they had been engulfed by the horns of the buffalo so it was a sort of circular attack where there was no escape once the the horns of the buffalo were around you and if you watch lions hunt it's an incredible thing there's lions are amazing you know because they sleep for 18 hours a day and then without a word being spoken they move out of this deep restful state and and they switch across into just the most incredible intensity and anytime lions are moving, they're pretty much hunting because they'll hunt by opportunity. If they see antelope up ahead of them or they see game, what you see is without a word being spoken, just this incredibly well-drilled team, one of the lionesses will throw herself around the right-hand flank. One of the other lionesses will turn and she'll cut around the left-hand flank. And then the central lionesses will start to approach. And right there, you see the horns of the buffalo. And, and so I wonder often if, um, if Shaka, who would have grown up in the, in the bushveld of Africa, I'm certain he would have tracked lions. They would have hunted and gathered and they would have stolen meat from lions. So he would have known how lions move when they hunt. And I wonder if it you know, affected his, um, his mindset and planted a seed in his head that he would later use when he became a military general. That's fascinating. Another thing that you can learn now. Thinking about things that you can learn, Shaka Zulu may have learned that from the uh, from observing the lions, may have not. But the point is, is that you can learn things from tracking. And what can you suggest to somebody who's stuck in America where there's not many lions running around, except in zoos? <laughs> um, what can you do to help people either appreciate a tracker and and do that where they live in their community where they might be tracking, I don't know, a cat or a, 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 a coyote or something like that. What, any, any advi practical advice? Well, one of the things that you can do pretty much anywhere, and this was taught to me by a, a friend of mine who, who studied with native trackers in North America. His name's Michael Trotter. And Michael taught me a process called sit spot, which is a really deep and beautiful exercise to start to create more awareness and tune in. 
And all you do is you pick a spot. It can be in your back garden. It can be a, in a park somewhere, it can, anywhere. Um, and you go there at the same time every day. And you sit and you allow yourself to become still inside and you start to tune in and pay attention. And what starts to happen is you start to develop a kind of a relationship with that spot. You start to know that there's some specific birds that like to perch on this branch. There's um, a family of chipmunks who live in that area. There's a raccoon that's made a, a sort of a burrow in the hollow of a tree. And the more you sit there, the more you will start to know the goings-on of the natural world in that place. And in a strange way, you will start to know yourself as a part of it. And over time, you start to feel yourself feeling very connected to what's going on in that small space. And I think that there's a few things to that. One, tracking is a discipline of awareness. Tracking is about being present. And two, when we become aware and present, we start to see that there is an intricacy of life around us um, that often goes unnoticed, that we are a part of. And when we feel ourselves connected to that life, something very beautiful and deep happens inside of us. We start to feel ourselves as a part of something bigger than us. We start to feel ourselves as belonging to something uh, very intelligent and very beautiful. And that changes something inside of us. I think that a lot of people feel tremendously isolated. More and more we're offered screens as a place to put our attention. Um, and less and less we feel like we just belong. And the first step to feeling like you belong inside is feeling yourself connected back to the natural world. I think that's a very natural remedy. And, you know, to sort of roll back a click to, to a question you asked me earlier, I had a, a strange sort of occurrence. And it's one of the, these like wonderful synchronicities that happen in your life. But when I was a young man, about 23, um, I had a woman come on safari and I took her out and, and we were tracking a, we were tracking a rhino together. And she said to me, you know, you and I do the same thing, but in very different ways. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, I've watched you track this animal and I've seen the process you've been using and tracking at its core is about finding what you're looking for. So the mentality and the approach and the psychology of the tracker is about finding what you're looking for. And she said, you know, I'm, I don't go, I don't take people tracking animals, but I help people find what they're looking for. And her name was Martha Beck and she was, she became my first expert. Uh, sorry. She became my first mentor and she was an expert on helping people discover what their true purpose and meaning and calling was. And so spending time with her, I started to see the art form of an inner tracker. And I started to realize that these principles that I had learned tracking animals, they were applicable in other parts of life. When you started the journey to find what you actually really felt called to and find what you really wanted to do. Um, yeah. So, and I mean, you, you know this because you are someone who has lived as I would say that while you may not be an animal tracker to me, you're a tracker because you know, you have taken the time to feel what makes you feel alive. You know what you feel called to. And that's why you've been on these incredible endless adventures. You know that something about the art of traveling and nomading, it, it feeds something inside of you. And so you're in touch with that and, you, and you're willing to follow it. You're willing to go forward towards it. You're willing to do it 
without knowing how it's going to work out. You're willing to live towards your passion. And that, to me, is what it means to live as a tracker, even if you don't track animals. Thank you. And that's very much the point of your latest book, which is coming out in, is it November 1st? Is it the official release date? 22nd of October. 22nd of October. Okay. So, and that's when... Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. Yes. And and it's a, it's a short book. And it I think for people who just heard your message, your last uh, few minutes here, it really drills that whole, that point through using your day of tracking these lines as a metaphor exactly for, for life. Now, how do you deal with it personally? I'm just curious because you're kind of split between New York, which is probably the, 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 the most <laughs> uh, cosmopolitan developed city. And then you have South I don't, Africa. I don't, I'm in New York at the moment, but I don't live in New York. It oh. would, that would be way, way too much for me. Okay. Um, but I thought you split your time between America and South Africa. Yes, I do. I do spend my time uh, here. I come over for a couple of months every year. And, um, but when I'm here, I'm, uh, I'm somewhere in the woods or I'm with groups. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so what it has, what it has meant for me is uh, a few things is I realized that there were my two passions. The two things that I feel deeply drawn to are the ancient art form of tracking itself. And then as an inner tracker, I feel deeply connected to the desire to help people learn to track inwardly and learn to connect with a wild part of them that knows what its purpose and mission is. And so when I am in South Africa, I'm running groups called track your life groups where I take people actually out to track animals and, and then to go inward to think about what's actually calling them, what's what they actually feel drawn to. And then when I come to America, I'm involved very much in uh, groups and, and group work, uh, life coaching work that helps people, really get in touch with what's calling to them. Um, and I feel like, Francis, that nowadays, those of us who learn to live as trackers, it's a kind of activism because people who get in touch with what's really calling them, um, people who get in touch with what really makes them feel alive and connected and, and actually move forward towards bringing more of that into their life, they make unusual lives. They make, lives that are out, they make lives that are outside of the models of what we get told, this is how life should be. They, they make up their own way of living, and then their life becomes an example that it's possible for us to live differently. People who start to live in touch with their passion and their gifts almost immediately, and they shift towards nature. They feel a deep connection with a simple life. They long for experiences rather than stuff. Um, and the whole definition of success starts to change when you get in touch with what actually feeds you. And so I think that when someone does the work of going inward as an inner tracker and they touch that place inside of them that is alive and is vibrant and knows what, it, knows what it's here to do, immediately they stop wanting more stuff. The consumerism desire just dies in them. And I think when enough people start to do that and get impelled back towards nature, get pulled back towards living simply, that can make a very, very big change. And I think the change in our relationship with the natural world, it has to come out of a shift inside millions and millions of people. We're not going to fix nature by having a program 
to save the rainforest or a program to save the rivers. We have to do that, but that's not going to be enough. What has to change is fundamentally um, what we consider successful, what we consider important, um, and, and a, a psychology away from an endless growth mentality to a, a simple, more connected way of being. Beautifully said, wonderfully said, and I think it's a great note to end on. However, I wanted to give you a chance for those who are listening to this, Boyd, and they say, okay, wonderful. I would love to participate in, in with you and work with you and get have you as a coach um, or maybe attend a workshop that you might have. How do they do that? You know, the easiest thing, Francis, is just to go to boydvati.com. Yeah, all of the information is up on the website. We're we're going to be um, launching a whole lot of new programs in America um, in the next year or so that I'm, I'm hoping um, many, many people can come and enjoy and, and tune into a different way of being. The book is also on the website. You can order Lion Tracker's Guide to Life there. And you can also order my first book, Cathedral of the Wild. So I, I hope there's a lot of great um, stories there that put people into the natural world. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with us. And uh, I will be putting out this podcast so that uh, people can, I think, get more in touch with their the, the side that is being kind of crushed under the digital weight of this world. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah, great to chat with you. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. Tour Radar sponsored this episode and is also sponsoring an amazing travel contest for the Wander Learn audience. Every month, enter to win a new Tour Radar contest for a chance to win a life-changing travel adventure. To toss your name into the hat, just go to tourradar.com slash wanderlearn. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one more reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, don't forget to download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And then five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is France Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.